0: Last week I was at a pastor's conference. Well, it's not really a pastor's conference. It's a, it's a group of about 15 pastors from across the country who, uh, we've been getting together for five or six, uh, years now. And it's great. It's good fun, uh, not only because we have the chance to study the Bible together and to talk about theology together, uh, in a, in a sort of safe context. But we also have the chance to rejoice with one another when things are going great in ministry, when God does amazing things to be able to hear how God's at work, not just in Grand Rapids, but around the country and to see what God is doing. It's also a blessing because not only do we get to rejoice with one another, we also get to weep with one another. Uh, There's a chance to share with each other sort of the burdens of ministry uh, and the difficulty of just trying to serve the Lord and to walk in faith. This past time when we got together last week, one of my friends was there. He's recently become a pastor in a church on the East Coast. He had been in academia before that and felt that God was calling him into pastoral ministry and had been a pastor for a couple of years. Well, he was there, and when it was time for her to share personally what was going on in life, he began to open up about some very difficult things going on in the church where he was. That there was a group of divisive people uh, who were really making his life difficult. Uh, They began to question everything that he was doing, began to uh, put up blockades, a hindrance to him, and it was really a very hard thing. And he was trying the best he could to sort of lead and guide this church, Uh, but uh, these people were not interested in having him take the church forward. It got so bad that at some point he simply had to call the denomination that he was part of and say, look, I need help. So the denomination came in and they investigated everything and they documented everything. And when they were done, the denomination concluded that really, for the most part, the pastor, my friend, was in the right and that those who were being divisive were in the wrong. Now, that was incredibly assuring and reassuring and helpful for my friend. This person also, uh, though, in the report that he received, after they got done saying that he was, for the most part, right, they gave a list of helpful suggestions uh, that he could keep in mind for next time better communication skills, process things, uh, really useful stuff i 'm sure, but the problem was is that, as he received this report, uh, the encouraging stuff about the fact that uh, you know he had done for the most part done the right thing, he found the other parts to be discouraging, and he was sharing that with us, like did I just? do I just not know how to be a pastor? Should I not be doing this? Did I make a mistake doing this? Maybe I don't have the communication skills or the charisma or the whatever is necessary. And as he was sharing his story with us, I couldn't help but think as I heard about this report from his denomination, from one point of view, they were absolutely right. They had come at this from really, from, very, from a good point of view, a human point of view of, here's what you did right, here's what you did wrong, here's what was happening, in it It seemed fine, but the problem was is there seemed to be something missing, something that was left wanting in their assessment of the whole thing. Not that anything that they had said was wrong, but that there seemed to be another perspective on what had happened, a perspective that they seemed to not have taken into account. Well, this missing perspective is something not only important for my pastor friend, but for us as well. That if you've gone through any sort of interpersonal turmoil at work or in ministry or wherever it may be, that there can be a very human way to look at that suffering and that difficulty, which is valid, but may not tell the whole story. There is another perspective that's important. It can happen if you are experiencing uh, physical difficulties, for example, from a car accident perhaps you were in maybe years ago. It may have been the fault of a drunk driver or somebody who had made some bad choices, You can view that thing that you're going through from the fact that that person made poor choices. But there's another perspective that's important. It can happen if, for example, you have some sort of health concern. Maybe you have cancer. And the doctors missed it, perhaps earlier when they could have caught it. And now it's in a much more uh, progressed state. It's an important perspective for us to have as we go through suffering If you've had a difficult experience at school, if perhaps a teacher has unfairly singled you out for difficult treatment, or perhaps you've experienced betrayal by a close friend, whatever the difficulty may be, there is, I believe, another way to look at this from other than the sort of normal way that we as humans approach suffering. That's incredibly important for us to understand. That's what we want to see this morning, this other perspective on suffering. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 980. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we've said that Peter is writing his epistle, especially to those who are in the midst of suffering for being Christians. And we've talked about joy that is possible in the midst of suffering. We've also talked about the doubts that every one of us goes through when we go through suffering. This morning we want to see a different perspective than the one we perhaps normally take when it comes to suffering. And to do that we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Now just to catch you up on where Peter is thematically, he's been talking about salvation. And Peter's defined salvation as new birth into a future characterized by hope, like the song we just heard the choir sing, hope in the night that that's our future, and into an inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. But Peter's point has been this salvation that we have received is not just about great things in the future. It's already begun to take place now in and through the sufferings that we are experiencing. Peter picks up what he's saying in verse 10. We pick up what he's saying in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Here in these few verses, Peter presents a different perspective on suffering. Talking about Jesus' suffering, he says, this was predicted by God. This was not accidental. It was something that God had predicted and foretold. The sufferings of the Messiah, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that will follow are all part of the plan of God. Now the question is, why does understanding that the Messiah's sufferings were talked about in the Old Testament, why is that important for you and I to understand as we go through our own sufferings? Well, in order to unpack what Peter is saying here and why he's writing this to a group of Christians who are going through suffering, why God is using this passage to speak to us today, we need to understand why it's so important that we believe that the Messiah's sufferings were predicted in the Old Testament. Now, I could just simply try to tell you why that's important. But what I'd like to do this morning is attempt to show you that. And to do that using the example and the teachings of Peter himself. So please turn in your Bible now to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. It's page 883. Acts chapter 1. What we're about to look at is the first time that anybody addresses the group of believers in Jesus after Jesus ascends to heaven. And of course, the person that you would expect would be the first person to speak after Jesus ascends to heaven is Peter. Verse 15, we pick it up. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Jump down to verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership now Peter speaking here about Judas's betrayal of Jesus and from one point of view Peter is saying look from a certain point of view Judas betrayed Jesus because he chose to do it he chose of his own free will to betray Jesus But inherent in what Peter is saying is another perspective on that same event, which is that all of this was predicted by God. It's part of God's plan that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. And this betrayal was predicted a thousand years before Jesus ever came on the scene. That it was written down in the prophets that this is part of God's plan for how salvation was supposed to happen. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. We looked at the first time anybody addressed the Christian church after Jesus' ascension. We now want to see the first time that anybody speaks to non-Christians on behalf of the church after Jesus' ascension. And of course the most likely candidate to do that is the Apostle Peter. And we pick up what he's saying to the group of non-Christians gathered at Pentecost in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and then he goes on to quote the Old Testament prophecy, that predicts Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And here's the idea, same thing as in chapter 1. From one point of view, Jesus was crucified because wicked people chose to crucify Him. They made a decision to put Him to death on a cross. But from another perspective, Jesus' death is part of God's plan the crucifixion that he experienced was planned by God as evidenced by the fact that God predicted it a thousand years before it happened. That it was written down in the Old Testament a thousand years before it came to be that Jesus would be crucified and raised from the dead. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. We're now going to see the first time that any Christian addresses a hostile political group. And as you can imagine, the person who's going to do the addressing is Peter. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, the sort of political rulers of the, of the area, call in Peter and John. And tell them, uh, they want to question them over a healing that they've done in the name of Jesus. In Peter's response, he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, as he's speaking to the Jewish ruling leaders, Then know this, you, leaders, and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Same idea. From one point of view, Jesus's rejection is a result of the fact that Jewish leaders chose to reject him. But from another point of view, This is all part of the plan of God as evidenced by the fact, you see that part in quotes, that's an Old Testament prophecy written a thousand years before Jesus in which God predicted and foretold that as part of his plan, the Messiah would be rejected by the leaders of his own people. And the point is, is that you can view all of the things that happened to Jesus, his betrayal by Judas, his crucifixion, His rejection by His own people. You can view them all from one perspective. Jesus was betrayed because Judas chose to betray Him. He was crucified because wicked men chose to crucify Him. He was rejected because leaders made a choice to reject Him. That's a very valid perspective on what happened to Jesus. But it's not the only one. And Peter says when you view this from another point of view, you realize that the betrayal, the crucifixion, and the rejection are all part of God's plan for Jesus as evidenced by the fact that he wrote this stuff down a thousand years before it happened. It's not just an accident. It's part of the deliberate plan of God. Now you say, okay, I think I buy that. Like, I, I'm, as a Christian, I, I mean... I need to believe that what happened to Jesus was not just some sort of accident, that this was God's purposeful plan, that this was part that his betrayal, his crucifixion, his rejection happened in accordance with God's will. But what does that have to do with my friend who went through the divisiveness at his church? Or what does that have to do with you or I if we're perhaps suffering physically from a car accident that we were in that perhaps wasn't our fault, or if we're going through the betrayal of a close friend ourselves, or if we've got a teacher at school who has unfairly singled us out and is picking on us. How does what Jesus went through have anything to do with what I'm going through? Well, keep going in Acts 4, because here this pattern that we've been seeing is going to take a little bit of a twist. Jump down to verse 23. In the context, after Peter says this to the leaders, they're not happy. And they basically tell him, look, if you keep talking about Jesus, bad things are going to happen to you. They threaten him, according to verse 21. Verse 23, we pick up the story. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, that's the church, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here they quote another Old Testament prophecy. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed... Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen." Now stop here for a second. Same pattern, right? You could look at Jesus' rejection and His crucifixion and all that He went through as just part of a human conspiracy that Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles got together and they conspired against Jesus. Very valid perspective. But Peter's saying, when viewed from another point of view, this all happened as a part of the plan of God. What God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Exactly what we saw in Acts 1. Exactly what we saw in Acts 2. Exactly what we saw in the beginning of Acts 4. But here's the twist the situation that this prophecy is being invoked in is not about Jesus' suffering, but about what the early church is going through. That's why it says in verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Peter's not talking about the threats against Jesus he's talking about the threats against the early church. What he's saying is, is that what is going on with the early Christians is not just a result of human decisions, but something that's part of God's plan as evidenced by the fact that God is talking about it in psalm 2 written a thousand years before it happened you see peter's point is this it's not just jesus's sufferings which are part of god's plan it's our sufferings too that the early church didn't read psalm 2 and think well this is just about jesus it is about jesus they thought it was about jesus but they also realized This is about our suffering. Our suffering is part of God's plan. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that God is purposing to do evil against us. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for doing evil in our lives. God can't do evil. He can't be tempted by evil. He has nothing to do with it. But listen to Peter's words The things that happen are part of what God has planned for us. And I don't know exactly how this works. But somehow, the choices that others make that affect us, the things that others do that cause us suffering, the things that happen to us that are outside of our control is somehow a result of what they've chosen to do And part of the plan of God. Somehow it all works together so that you can look at what was going on in the early church and say they were suffering threats and persecution because people had chosen to threaten them and persecute them. But also because this was somehow part of God's plan for what he wanted to see accomplished. And here's the real kicker is that when Peter and the early church are reading Psalm 2, this prophecy that was written a thousand years earlier, they don't just think it's talking about Jesus. It is. They clearly think that. They think it's also talking about them. That's why it says, they, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In Psalm 2, After the part that was quoted, it says, Ask the Lord and he will give you the nations as your inheritance. Peter and the early church are reading that psalm and saying, God's talking to us. He's telling us that when we face threats from a hostile political group, our response is to pray and ask God to give us the nations. And that's what they do. But they think the nations come to them through the gospel. They realize, okay, what God wants us to do is to go out and claim for Jesus the inheritance of the nations that Psalm 2 says is his. And so they think that Psalm 2 is not just written about Jesus. They think it's written about them. Let's go back to 1 Peter and see what Peter has to say specifically about this. Back to, Psalm, or sorry, back to 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Peter says, speaking about the prophecies in the Old Testament, what's written in the Old Testament, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were not serving themselves, but you. What Peter is saying is, When God, who is the ultimate author of the Old Testament, when He wrote the Old Testament, He did not have just in mind the original audience, but you and I as well. That when the early church comes to Psalm 2, they realize not only did God have in mind the original context in which Psalm 2 is written, and not only did God have in mind Jesus when Psalm 2 is written, (laughs) He had us in mind when Psalm 2 was written. And if you think about it, how can a God who stands outside of time not have us in mind? How can He not see what we are going through that's part of His plan, that He's planned for us when He's reading or when He's writing the Scriptures? That God, this is what Peter is saying, is that God understands that what the Old Testament is being written for is not just for the original audience of the Old Testament, but for us. Because God has us in mind. What this means is is for my friend who's going through this difficult time, yes, you can view this as simply the result of poor choices on the part of people in the congregation, bad decisions, but you can also view it as part of the plan of God. You can view the betrayal that you've gone through by that close friend simply as a result of a person making a decision to do a bad thing. Or you can also see it as part of the plan of God. That that teacher who has unfairly singled you out, perhaps they've done it simply out of prejudice. But you can also see it as part somehow of the plan of God. That that conflict you're having at work You can see it simply as an interpersonal conflict that perhaps everybody had better communication skills or were kind that would go away. Or you can see it as somehow part of the plan of God. And if it is, then realize that God had that situation in mind when He wrote the Scriptures. What that means is, is... Psalm 2 might be about you. Of course it's first and foremost about Jesus, but it's also about the early church and what they were going through at a specific moment. But it might be about you too. It might be your situation that God had in mind when he wrote Psalm 2. Not only the original context, not only Jesus, not only the early church, but also you and me. So here's the advice I gave to my friend. It's the same advice I give to anybody who's in the midst of suffering because it's the advice that others have given to me and that I have followed and have found to be the most beneficial advice. And it's this. When you're in the midst of difficult times, result of something somebody's done to you, a result of a health scare, a result of whatever it is that you're going through, pick up your Bible, Start reading in Psalm 1 and don't stop until you find your soul. Start reading in Psalm 1 and don't stop until you find your soul. Every one of the passages we looked at from the book of Acts are all from the book of Psalms. That's where they're all quoted from. When I say the prophecies a thousand years, ago, they're all from Psalms. Now, you can do this with any passage of the Old Testament. You can do it with any passage of the New Testament. I can tell you, pick up the book of Matthew and keep reading until you hear God speak to you through Matthew. But if you want to narrow it down, if you want some place to start in the midst of suffering, my advice is start with Psalm 1 and keep reading until you find your psalm. And what I mean by finding your psalm is when you read that psalm and all of a sudden you go, I think this is written for me. I think this was written for me in mind. The reason why I shared that advice with my friend is because I have been through something similar as what he went through. And when I went through that, it was darkness. It was like being lost in a cloud. It was like having no idea what was going on. It was like you felt like a brute beast stumbling forward with no sense of what was happening. You feel all alone. And I began to read the Psalms. And when I got to Psalm 27, I thought, has this ever... Did somebody put this in here when I wasn't looking? Have I never read this before? That somehow when I read Psalm 27, it was like the rest of the universe faded away and I felt like this was written for me. I've since told people, when you're going through your Psalms, don't bother with 27 because that one's mine. It felt like it was my situation. It felt like that was my words right on the page there. And you know what that means? when you're going through something and you think well maybe it's a result of stuff that I didn't do right or maybe it's a result of the fact that people maybe it's just dumb luck when all of a sudden you see your situation written thousands of years before you came along you realize it's not just dumb luck it's part of the plan of God and it's not like when I go through something difficult God's up in heaven going oh Jim's going through something bad I wonder if there's anything I wrote is anything useful in here that's not what he's doing what he's doing is he's saying, you're going through exactly what I had planned for you to go through. And I had that in mind when I wrote Psalm 27, that yes, there was an original audience that Psalm 27 was written for, but God, who stands outside of time, knew exactly what I was going to go through. And the words of Psalm 27 were meant to speak to my situation too. And that's not just me. Charles Spurgeon during the the, the plague in London at one point was overwhelmed by fear and was sure he was going to die. Everybody around him was dying. He got to Psalm 91 and realized God had written that psalm with his situation in mind. Martin Luther, when he's going through the trials and tribulations of the Reformation and, and people are turning against him and he feels like he's all alone, Martin Luther finds Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is. His psalm written for that specific situation. For my wife, as we were, uh, I was going through the sermon with her, she said, Well, when we went through this and we recounted a difficult experience that we had had in our life, she said it was Psalm 139. I got to Psalm 139, I realized God had written that for me, for that particular situation. On Tuesday, when we were talking about this with our pastoral staff, Susan Sorensen, who's on our pastoral staff, said, Well, when I went through cancer, it was Psalm 18. It was Psalm 18 that felt like it had been written just for me. And that's the point. Is that if when you turn to the scriptures that were written all, all written before we lived. When you find God speaking to you through them about the particular situation that you're in. Then you can know. That what I'm going through is not a result of just simply bad choices or not just dumb luck. That what I'm going through is part of the plan of God and he had this in mind when he wrote these scriptures all these years ago. And let me just tell you, it's an incredible comfort. It's an incredible blessing to know God is speaking to me right here and right now. That's why when the choir sings about this, your word gives sight to the blind, That's what this means is that when you're in the darkness and you open up God's word and God speaks to you, it's not like the rest of the Bible is not God's word anymore, but there's something about that passage or that verse that when you hear it read, it speaks so strongly into your situation. You think this is not a coincidence. God is talking to me right here, right now. And what that means is is that what you're going through and what I'm going through is not just the result of human choices, but part of the deliberate plan of God. So much so that God's already written the response to it thousands of years before it happened. Now we've begun this morning talking about the less important things, which is the sufferings that we go through. As we come to communion, we want to end with the most important things, which are the sufferings that Jesus went through. Ultimately, those Psalms were about the early church and are about us because ultimately they're about Jesus. That when we come to Jesus' life, His birth, His life, His persecution, His rejection, His death, we realize that this is not just the result of human choices. If it was, you could look at the life of Jesus and the person of Jesus and think, well, that's just an accident of history. It happened to be the perfect storm. Here was this guy, this religious leader, who happened to get caught up in some sort of frenzy and was crucified for it, and bad things happened to him. Happens to people all the time. Until you realize that God predicted all of these things hundreds of years before they happened. Because Jesus' suffering and death is not an accident. It is the deliberate plan of God. Because there is no other way for God to save us from suffering and death, to give us a future characterized by hope, except through this plan That's why Peter says in Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can experience salvation except the name of Jesus. He's saying, look it up. God has a plan to rescue us. He told us about that plan long before it happened. When you look at the plan, there's only one person in the plan who can rescue us. It's Jesus. There's no plan B. Read it. Peter's saying, we can't be making this up. It was written down a thousand years before it happened. This is the plan. How do I experience eternal life? How do I have forgiveness of sins? How do I have someone come alongside me in the midst of it? There's a plan and it's written down, but there's only one. And it's Jesus. No other plan. And so if you're here and you've not yet accepted that this is God's plan... God has a plan for dealing with sin and death. He wrote it down long before it happened. And that plan is Jesus. And if you've not yet accepted that, today is the day to believe and to accept the things going on in this world. Yes, from one point of view, they are the result of human choices. Yes, from one point of view, the things that have happened to you have been because other people have chosen to do those things to you or because you have made those choices. Yes, I understand that. But there is another perspective and the perspective is God is sovereign over all things and all things are working together according to his plan. And the centerpiece of that plan is that God himself would become a human. Die on a cross for our sins. Be raised from the dead to give us eternal life with him forever. It's the plan. And if you've not yet accepted that or believe that, today is the day to accept that.